brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. All right, people, how we doing out there from sunny San Diego? I'm Greg Carlwood, and today really is the treat of treats, because although many of us are clued in on both the power of consciousness and the high strangeness that's been explored by government agencies like the CIA in secret, we are in the minority. And it is unfortunate that most folks still find the conversation around psychic spies, ESP, precognition, and remote viewing to be eye-roll worthy, despite the fact that the CIA has released over 70,000 documents on the Stargate project in recent years, a project that went on for two decades but was officially closed in 1995 after a CIA report concluded it was never useful in any intelligence operation, a massive slap in the face to those involved, and not to mention a bold-faced lie. Because when you really dig into the material, you realize that individuals like Pat Price, Ingo Swan, and Uri Geller were so effective and so accurate that there was no way the secret keepers of the CIA would disclose that you could mentally penetrate black sites or see Russia from your house with just a little conscious attention and an afternoon's worth of training. It seems the real secret about remote viewing is not that it didn't work, but that it worked so well as to render secrecy virtually obsolete. Well, the compelling saga of the Stargate Project is the subject of a new documentary by today's guests Russell Targ and Lance Mungia entitled Third Eye Spies that finally discloses the truth and gets those involved with the project to talk about it firsthand while they still can. Of course, our listeners probably know a little bit about the psychic work done at SRI by co-founders Russell Targ and Hal Putoff back in 1972, work which received the infamous CIA contract just a few years later. But Russell is also known for his work as a physicist, a pioneer in the development of lasers, and a retired senior staff scientist for Lockheed Martin, as well as the author of many illuminating books such as The Reality of ESP, A Physicist's Proof of Psychic Abilities, Limitless Mind, A Guide to Remote Viewing and Transformation of Consciousness, and Do You See What I See? Memoirs of a Blind Biker, Lasers and Love, ESP and the CIA, and The Meaning of Life, just to name a few. And as I mentioned, he is also joined today by filmmaker Lance Munguia, who is known for films like Six String Samurai and The Crow Wicked Prayer. Together, they have corrected the historical record and released what I consider to be the best documentary on the true story of CIA psychic spying conceivable. So let's get into it. The Third Eye Spy guys themselves, Russell and Lance, welcome to the higher side. 
Wow, that was an awesome intro. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm very happy to be with you. It's a mouthful, but you know, you got to give people the context. You got to get them hooked. And man, wow, this is just a real honor to have you guys here and to help put some eyes on this film. It really is a mind blower. I learned so much that I didn't know. And Russell, I know you've been writing about what you could for years now, but the release of this film, I mean, it has to have offered maybe a new level of relief or satisfaction in getting the record corrected, because to have the CIA be so dismissive of the work when you really knew how truly effective it was, that had to be kind of tough, right? Well, the important thing about this film is that we were able to get the cooperation of the CIA, so the actual two operators from the CIA who talk about their being polygraphed or on camera with us. So you've got Kit Green, who's the physician, and Ken Crest, who's a scientist, are both on camera looking at you and saying, yes, we were there when Russ did this stuff. It's true. And the thing that happened is really as they describe it, and it's really priceless to get the CIA to testify that the psychic spying we did from them really occurred. <laughs> yes, that is an accomplishment all its own. And Lance, I think it's so commendable to use your filmmaking talents to do something like this. I know you even got some people, as Russell just said, like Ken Crest, to speak on record for the first time, even if his questions did have to be vetted by the CIA. But how has this process been for you? You must be pretty proud. Oh, I'm I'm um, I'm incredibly proud and I'm incredibly relieved that we got the film out and that the film's being well received. I mean, you know, we've been in the top five uh, pretty much for about three weeks now on iTunes, which is blow mine because we, we debuted there. So there's a real, I think, audience for this type of material and, and people who I think already sort of inherently know that there's something to, you know, their own intuitive abilities and, and uh, maybe they haven't been told the whole truth about it. So I think that this is really sort of a groundbreaking thing that's going to really upset people's apple cart in a way, you know, and, and I think that's a good thing because we need that now and then. And so I'm, I'm just absolutely honored to have been a part of this film with Russell, uh, you know, who was the producer of the film with me and, and also everybody else that was involved because I was stunned. You know, one of the one of the things that really got me involved with the film was I was just absolutely stunned by how many credible, incredibly smart people had taken part of this. It was amazing to me. And I just felt like it was a story that absolutely needed to be told because it hadn't. Mm, cheers to that. Yes. And the scope is definitely something to behold. And Russell, I think most listeners here are on board with remote viewing as a viable mental ability, broadly speaking. But what can you say about the protocols or the limitations of these abilities just to flesh it out a bit more? Can you give us a better idea of the shape of remote viewing overall and what it can do? I, I'm happy to do that. I want to answer your earlier question. I am relieved to have this film finally available from YouTube and iTunes and Amazon because until the film was actually on the screen available, I was always worried the CIA is going to come after us and say, we changed your mind because the material we present in the film had been top secret and it was ineligible for a downgrade. So it broke my heart as we would do remarkable remote viewing where somebody would describe a, Pat Price would describe a crane in the Soviet Union and show it right down to the nuts and bolts. And then they would stamp that ineligible from downgrading, which means that 20 years could go by and you still couldn't tell anybody about it. Mm. So I feel that 
finally, while I'm still alive, I'm able to tell this story because nobody else would tell it. There's nobody else around who would tell the story of our 20 years of remarkable psychic research and psychic spying. The remote viewing that we're talking about is an ability that we all have in which you quiet your mind and you're able to describe and experience what's going on in a distant place or in the future. So what's secret is that anyone can do it. Now, some people are better than others, just like in a musical ability. Everybody can learn to play the piano a little bit, but some people will get to Carnegie Hall, and those are very few. Similarly, our great superstars like Pat Price and Ingo Swan, Hella Hammond, Uri Geller were in a class by themselves. They were A-plus psychics, but there are quite a lot of other people. We trained a dozen people from the U.S. Army Intelligence Command, and they set up a psychic spying corps in Maryland. So these were Army guys in their boots and leather jackets suddenly become spies for Army intelligence. So the ability is really quite available. And one of the things I wanted to get across in the film is that this is not an exotic occult ability. As part of being human, we have that ability, and even a scientist can do it. <laughs> you know, Greg, it was amazing to me that uh, Russell's passion for this. I mean, that, that was really another thing that kept me going over the years of making this film was, uh, you know, this was a story that, you know, he obviously wanted to tell, but it was one of the biggest things we discussed when we first started was, is this even going to be allowed to be seen? That was actually a really big concern. We To the very end, we thought, I don't know, maybe somebody right now from, from CIA or some other agency is making a phone call to the studio and saying, guys, you can't release this. Yeah, I mean, I am pretty shocked. I'm fairly cynical about what I expect from the CIA. So this is really great. I guess we'll take it when we can get it. And as you learn more about remote viewing, little details emerge that kind of speak to the mechanisms involved that just blow my mind. Like if you're trying to hide something, apparently that makes it easier to see in psychic space. That's curious. But I guess I'd ask when you're looking at a particular place, how is seeing with the third eye different from seeing with the first two? Well, the business of hiding things in psychic space where they line from our great psychic, Pat Price. Price was a retired police commissioner who came to us in the early days of our program and he was given coordinates of something that our contract monitor, uh, Kit Green, wanted him to describe. So he was given a slip of paper with latitude and longitude and said, so what do you see, Pat? And Pat said, well, I see this uh, collection of big radar antennas and trucks going in and out and buildings. And you can go down into this building. And in the basement of the building, there are a bunch of racks of equipment. And the, the name of this place is Rack Up and Cue Ball and Eight Ball and all sorts of billiard names. And he gave us the, the names of the programs that he saw. What turned out is what he described is a top secret National Security Agency, NSA listening post. Nothing could be more secret than what he described. Because in American security, the listening post of the NSA or the super top of the top secret things. 
So this nice retired policeman dug into that and described the, not only did he describe what was there, but the names of the program were top secret. So we had a big inquisition at SRI. CIA was called in. NSA was sore as hell. NSA wanted to know why would the CIA target the psychics to break the code of the NSA? So everybody was upset about that. And finally, the NSA guy turned to Pat Price and said, if you're so psychic, why didn't you describe the thing where your court coordinates actually sent you, which was a log cabin just over the hill from the Sugar Grove facility? Well, Price said, I, I was coming in at 50,000 feet over this hilltop psychically, and I saw the log cabin, but then I saw this giant facility with huge antennas, and I assumed that that's what you wanted me to see, because you know, in psychic space, the more you hide something, the more it shines like a beacon. And that little epigram has been our theme through the whole program. The more attention you have on hiding something, the more it shines like a beacon in psychic space. And that was Pat Price's experience. Mm. Yes, I like that. And it's just interesting because a lot of the targets are things like secret facilities, secret submarines, nuclear facilities. And the first thought is, well, this is because of the intelligence gathering application. But maybe it's also in part the fact that when you're out there in psychic space, those things that are secret shine up more. So it's kind of like a very convenient part of the process that actually works for the CIA's application. I, I absolutely agree with that, Greg. I think that one of the things that's been shown again and again through all of the remote viewing experiments that have been done, all the stuff that's being done today, is it's not just the more you want to hide it, but just that the more consciousness itself that is placed on a given uh, object. Like, for instance, if the same target is tasked by multiple remote viewers over a long period of time, they find that they statistically can get better outcomes because there's just been a lot of attention placed on it. You know, like the, you asked before about like, you know, like what's the difference between looking with your eyes and looking with your 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 third eye or your, your psychic ability. And I, I would, Russell can, you know, chime in on this, but I think that it's an imaginal ability. I mean, it's something you're using your imagination and we tend to always discount our imagination. We We get probably strange images in our mind all of the time and we just kind of filter it out as noise. And what I think SRI and, and, and Russell and all of the, the people who worked there figured out was, no, we should really be paying attention to these sort of just unexpected little blips that we get on our mental radar. Mm -hmm. And I think that really was the secret to their uh, success was not only were they doing that, but they were looking at really big things, like you say, that, that made it very convenient to see because a lot of other people were, were thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, when people kind of think about remote viewing, I imagine that they generally have this sort of out-of-body aerial view impression, but that's not always true, right? Because there's cases of getting inside places that really you shouldn't be able to get into at all and actually reading details like names on files. One of the experiments we did, uh, Ken Kress asked us, he was a contract monitor from the CAA. Sometimes he wanted to know uh, where's the hostage or where's the airplane? And sometimes he would just give us a test to see how accurately we could do. And one of the things he asked us to do is, can you describe Brezhnev's office in the Kremlin? And he knew that I'd never been inside the Kremlin. 
And the psychic I was working with was my friend Hella Hamid, who's an experienced Life magazine photographer, but she was brought into our program as a control. Kit Green, who's a physician, said, we know that Ingo Swan and Pat Price have been psychic all their lives. Can you find us somebody who's never done this before? And I asked my friend Hella, who's a very intelligent German refugee, came to America, was a photographer, worked for Life magazine, woman for all seasons, always game. And she thought it would be very entertaining to come from L.A. where she's living to be a psychic spy for the CIA and be paid to be psychic. She just thought that was the funniest thing anybody had ever offered her. She said, sure, I, if you show me how to do it, I'll come and do it. And she turned out to be the most statistically successful of anybody in the program. They're compared with the great Ingo Swan, Pat Price, where you really put her to the test, how accurately can you describe place after place? Hella was the top psychic in the program, and she was brought into the control. Because that should be an inspiration for anybody who hears this and would like to try it, because what we found is that the inexperienced control was the most psychic person we ever saw. So Kit Green asked us to describe Brezhnev's office. So I sat down with Hella in our little shielded remote viewing room, and she said, well, I'm walking down a hallway covered with a red brocade, and at the end of the hall, there's a door covered with leather, and that red leather is held in place by big brass upholstery tacks. That's what I get. Now, it's my job as a interviewer. See, I never know what the answer is but I know what the customer wants to hear. And I know that he doesn't want to hear about the front door. He wants to hear about what's inside. So my job is like like the priest at Delphi 2,000 years ago. There was a psychic sitting on a tripod at Delphi, the oracle, and the priest would ask her questions and have to keep the ball rolling until the question from the customer was answered. So I sort of played this part that had been set up 2,000 years before. I was the interviewer. So when Hella described the door with brass upholstery tacks, I said, well, why don't I open that for you? You can see what's inside, as though I can reach out and open the door in the Kremlin. But that's like the um, lucid dream we're both participating in. And she said, well, the door is open, but it's dark inside which would be appropriate because they're nine hours ahead of us. So I said, okay, I'll turn on the lights, Hella. What do you see now as you look around? And she said, well, that's much better. If I look out the window, I can see Red Square, and I see the churches with their onion domes on the left. And on the right, I see a big wooden desk covered with a big sheet of glass. And behind the desk... Uh, there's a wooden wall, there's a door in the wall. So I said, well, why don't we open the door and see what's there? And we walked into the door and walked down a flight of stairs. And she said, well, there's computer bays on the left and on the right, big racks of computers. And at that point, I began to feel frightened. Because I have a lot of clearances at that point, but I was not cleared to be in the computer bay of the Kremlin. <laughs> 
So I felt uh, a sort of flash of paranoia closing in on me. And in my interviewer framework, I said, we've told them enough. If, if, if she's, if what Hella said is correct, they know that we've been in the Kremlin, in the Brezhnev's office. So I said, that's terrific, Hella. Let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> and it turned out that two years later, I had left the program and I was giving a lecture to the Soviet Academy of Sciences in the Kremlin. And everybody thought that that was very interesting. And I told them there are no secrets anymore. And they found that the most shocking thing of all. And they said, well, is there anything you'd like to see? And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I'd like to see Brezhnev's office. I don't have to meet the premier. I would just like to see where he sits. <laughs> so they walked me out of the big lecture theater down the hall, opened the door covered with red leather, and I could see his desk on the right, and out the window I could see the Kremlin, the red square, and she had given a picture-perfect description of Brezhnev's office as I got to see for myself two years later. So this is the kind of thing that we were doing at SRI. I'd work with the psychic. I had no idea what the answer was but I could keep the ball rolling so that she would continue to describe what was there and then somebody would get feedback at the end. So that was considered a very successful experiment when I was able to come back and say, yes, she described exactly what was there. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's just so fascinating that it seems like it's no harder to see something 6,000 miles away, even if you've never been there, than it is something in the next room. And that's just... Uh crazy thing to get your head around and great bringing up the oracle of delphi i mean this is uh not new i mean humanity has known about this for a long long time i guess we just forgot for a while or you know we're steered away from this sort of stuff but it's definitely been in the mix of the human story for a long time hasn't it that's right the buddhists have written about this extensively and before Christ, potentially with a Hindu Dharma master, and he wrote a book, which is now known to the sutras of Patanjali, where he tells about if you want to experience the divine, you quiet your mind, and you will be able to see into the distance, see into the future, heal the sick, diagnose the sick, but uh, don't get attached to that. These are just, these are just abilities, which they call cities. And there will be stumbling blocks if you want to experience the divine and you experience your ability to see into the distance and see into the future. You know you're on the right track, but that's not the end goal. And the Buddhists, the 8th century, Padmasambhava is the one who brought Buddhism to Tibet. So he's a historical figure who wrote many, many books. And he wrote a book called Self-Liberation through seeing with naked awareness, which sounds like a remote viewing textbook, mm -hmm. self-liberation through seeing with naked awareness. And in order to do that, you have to give up your desire to name things and to grasp them. Naming and grasping, and what we would call analysis, is the enemy of psychic abilities. You want to experience your timeless awareness, which is your nature, and then you can see into the distance, see into the future, and experience your true nature. And this was 1,200 years ago. 
So as an author, it always makes me happy to find that a book written 1,200 years ago is still in print and people find it interesting. <laughs> but the Buddhists have that as part of their lore from the very beginning. They don't feature it. It's a little embarrassing, but the, the great Buddhist teacher like Padmasambhava and Longchen Rabjan, who was less of a theologian and a rather a genius, helpful writer, this guy named Longchampa in the 12th century wrote in what for us is contemporary English, no mumbo jumbo, no deities, no eight armed creatures. He just told you in detail how your awareness is inherently timeless and you're not limited by cause and effect because your consciousness can move into time, into space. The idea that if you think your nature is what you see in the mirror in the morning, then you're in for a lot of suffering. Hmm. You're really not the meat and potatoes you see in the mirror, but your nature is timeless awareness, and you can quiet your mind and move into these timeless realms. Huh. And Buddhists are, are there to help you do that. Man, it is so amazing. And it's just crazy to me that We've had this in the human record for so long. Apparently, it doesn't take that much training, and yet here we are. So few people even believe it's possible, and it's a hell of a lot more interesting than American Idol. I don't know why people are focused on the wrong thing so often, but Lance, to bring you back in here, when Russell broke this all down for you and you learned about some of these, I guess, biggest hits, should we say, of the Stargate Secret Spies, Give us an example of something that maybe you found most impressive. What blew your mind? Well, um, I actually want to just for a minute talk about what blew my mind about what Russell was just saying because sure. I was I was I was sitting here listening to him first of all talk about uh, you know guiding Hella Hammond through the Kremlin and 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 the way that he was talking. This is a completely pop culture reference. I don't know if you've ever heard of Dungeons and Dragons or if you ever played it as a kid. Have I heard of Dungeons? <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> you know, and and as part of that game, you have uh, this this person who is always the dungeon master, and he sits there and he has all the maps and he knows he knows sort of the the layout of the story and what they're looking for, and he guides these other characters. Uh, you know, the other kids sitting around the table through this sort of imaginary world, and he'll say, "Okay, you're coming up on a door." now there's two orcs standing in front of the door what would you like to do now you know he paints the picture for them and i think that that's what made russell so good as a monitor for remote viewing is that he understood very clearly that this was something that completely lived in the imagination and so it's almost like playing a game it's like he was able to sort of set the the, the tone and the and and the and the, and, the, and, the, and help the person that was doing the remote viewing through the world and I, I find that so fascinating because it is almost like playing dungeons and dragons and that never occurred to me until just now as i was watching him <laughs> or, or, or you know um, say that but in terms of the thing that really really moved me the most in it and that kept me going it was the second part of what Russell just said you know because he talks about timeless awareness and uh, I remember this conversation we had after we had just interviewed Ken Kress who was the undercover you know initial program manager for CIA and and uh, we were out in Montana we were driving through big sky country I was in the back seat and I was actually filming Russell in the rearview mirror like holding a camera and Russell was sitting in the front and we were just driving through this amazing, amazing picturesque landscape. And, and there's just all of these clouds floating across Russell's face as I was I was filming him. 
And I thought, this is just an incredibly beautiful image. And he started talking about timeless awareness. And the fact that what remote viewing suggests is that, you know, we are connected to all other points in space and time and outside of space and time, in fact. And and that's what the Buddhists have been talking about with all of the great masters through history have have said is that, you know, you're much more than just what you think you are, you know, and, and we really are, are only as powerless as we think we are. And that to me was was a moment that hit me very hard. And it, and it actually, I thought about it for actually years after that. I mean, it was something that has stuck with me. And and it was something that, that drove me. I mean, it's not a scientific statement. And I'm not here to prove any kind of belief system. You know, that's not what I'm doing with this film. I mean, I wanted to be as objective as possible, you know, in how we portrayed this sort of phenomenon, because there was so much data to it. But you can't help but walk away from this subject matter with a better appreciation of sort of the mysteries and the things that we don't know. And I, I see this again and again and again when people watch our film. You know, they they kind of walk out and they kind of scratch their heads and go, wow, I thought I had a pretty good handle on things, but, you know, maybe I don't. And and that's healthy. That's a really healthy sort of um, skepticism. You know, it's it's like a, you, you would think, oh, you're, a, you know, somebody's a true believer. If they think that, no, no, no. You're actually, I think, more skeptical of the existing models uh, that we have. And, and I think that that was something that I felt we could really contribute to the overall conversation in a bigger way than, than just sort of psychic spies for the military. You know, to me, the psychic spies were, were fascinating. And, and as a storyteller, that's a great story to tell, uh, cause it, it's a hook, but it wasn't the thing that kept me working on this and kept me working on it to a point where I felt like it was really good because there were many points where we could have just stopped and said okay let's just put the film out and it'll be okay and you know people will enjoy it we wanted to make a great film about this subject matter that was always our goal so what kept me going was that it was this idea of sort of what we don't know and and the mysteries and because i love living in a world uh where there's a little bit of magic and a little bit of mystery and and not everything is just completely uh figured out and and time and time again throughout history Science has always had to reevaluate itself and it's always had to step back and, and, and take a second look at things. And whenever we get stuck, I think, as a as a species, as humanity, is is when we think we have it all figured out. I'm right. You're wrong. Everything is set. You know, it, it, we, it, that just sets us up for failure from the time that Columbus tried to, you know, ride to the end of the earth and Galileo made his first telescope and, uh, you know, man first created fire. I mean, this is just another step in that evolution. And um, as Skip Atwater said so nicely at the end of the film, he was the uh, captain of the um, Army remote viewing uh, unit at Fort Meade. He said, you know, maybe it's not all about psychic spies and gathering intelligence. And maybe what this is really about is just another step in in evolution, you know, towards the evolution of our own consciousness. And, and maybe what that's really about is getting a little bit better feel for other people and for empathy. The world, I think, can benefit from some empathy about now. I mean, there's so much sort of lack of it and sort of separation. And I just think that's a beautiful question to talk about in a film. And I'm so, so glad that, that uh, we were able to bring that to the table. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great points. And you're right. Huge implications for the makeup of reality. And that kind of makes me wonder because there are a few comments peppered throughout the film about the CIA and how they were pretty singularly focused on spycraft. They didn't really want to study it any further than just getting results, and they definitely didn't care too much about those wider implications. I'm curious, Russell, if looking back in hindsight, 
how you feel about aligning all this work with the same organization responsible for things like MKUltra. Might you have done things differently at all? Well, we were invited to follow the path of MKUltra because one of our first contact of the CIA was uh, Sidney Gottlieb, who ran MKUltra. Mm -hmm. First of all, I want to say that I recognize he's a horrible person right up there with Joseph Mengele torturing people and killing people. But he's also highly intelligent, entertaining, sort of your basic sociopath. With the left hand, he's killing people. With the right people, he's quite entertaining. And he thought that we could improve our remote viewing if we would give LSD to our subjects. But uh, we we're already pretty experienced with remote viewing and knew that you have to have your conscious awareness available to separate the signal, the psychic signal, from your mental noise. So there's a strong analytical requirement to do remote viewing, because when you close your eyes, you're going to see all kinds of pictures, and you have to learn to recognize the images that correspond to your distant target from what you saw in the parking lot on your way to the laboratory. So, um, yeah, we're familiar with MKUltra. That was not the path that we wanted to follow. And I want to say my reason for mentioning Buddhism is not that you should accept psychic ability because the Buddhists described it, but I want to give you the idea that this is not new age. This is not something that was invented in the years of the flower children, but people have been studying this and writing books on how to do it for 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. So we have some advance. We can know modern physics. We can say a little bit about how this must be working to let you look into the future and into the distance. Uh, but the Buddhists had been quite proficient in perfecting this so that people could include uh, psychic abilities in their lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, that Sidney Gottlieb subtext is quite interesting. I'd heard you talk about that before, but Man, he seems like an intimidating guy to uh, disagree with. <laughs> well, I can tell you about the very first thing we show in the film, so you don't have to believe me. We come on with a testimony from President Jimmy Carter where uh, the Russians had accidentally crashed an airplane into North Africa, and the CIA was looking for it and could not find it. And Jimmy Carter was in on that he, because the crashed plane, although it was a bomber, was doing reconnaissance and was full of code books. So it was more valuable than a bomber. And we were in a race with the Russians. Who will find it? The Americans or the Russians? And the CIA couldn't find it because having crashed in the jungle, satellite photography could not penetrate the jungle canopy. So they were so desperate, as Carter says in the film, that we went to the psychics in California, and the psychics were able to mark a map, read off the coordinates, and we then sent a helicopter to Zaire to those coordinates, and we found the bomber just where the psychic lady said it would be. We had a whole investigation showing that our team with the CIA using our coordinates got the helicopter 
in a situation where nobody else could find it. And so we opened the film with this testimony from Jimmy Carter. It's like, who who can you believe if you don't trust Jimmy Carter? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Greg, Greg, I, I, I wanted to just take it back to what you asked a, a minute ago, though, for a minute, because I think it's a great question. You know, it's, it's something as a filmmaker I asked myself several times during the making of the film is when we talk about these kinds of things, and and we talk about like what they were used for, you know, like the, the word target is thrown around a lot in remote viewing. But this was actually something that was used as a tool of intelligence in potentially, you know, violent situations when they were looking for terrorists or they were looking for a terrorist training camp in Libya, for example, or for uh, kidnapped hostages where, where violence could take place. And uh, and I think it's a it was it was it's an interesting thing in, in terms of anything can be used for good or ill. You know, Hal Putoff told me, you know, sort of off camera during the, uh, you know, making of this, you know, we we had a, 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 I was sitting there with him and I said, you know, that, that exact question that you just asked Russell, you know, do you ever, does it ever concern you that you were using remote viewing for, you know, the military and they could have been using this for some other end that you didn't know about? And he said, you know, I don't think that wars are created by intelligence. You know, they're created by ignorance. Mm. And I thought that was a, a very true statement because the more you know about your enemy, the the less likely you are to actually wind up having to go to war because you you understand more. And and I think that's that's sort of what Russell's whole sort of journey has been for so long is sort of trying to bring this to awareness more and more, you know, because too much secrecy isn't necessarily a good thing. Yes. And so you get a choice. You can be intelligent or you can be ignorant and you, you get that choice to make. And most people will choose intelligence over ignorance. And that's the direction we went. Of course, we did half of our work for the CIA, finding down bombers and describing weapon systems and so forth. But the other half we published in the proceedings of the uh, IEEE, the American Engineering Society magazine, and we published in Nature magazine, which is a prestigious worldwide magazine. So we published our remote viewing findings in top-rated scientific journals, in addition to spying for the CIA. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, and it is a curious thing to people is how this would have unfolded if it wasn't under that umbrella. But of course, it is what it is. And it's just a tool used for many different purposes. But maybe we can get a little bit more into those wider implications. If the work maybe hadn't been so agenda driven towards intelligence gathering, or we could say now that we're kind of past that chapter and this story's out, how would you like to see this sort of knowledge used or contextualized for the wider audience? Well, my I'm a physicist, so what floats my boat every morning is that we have this data from 20 years of remote viewing where you can describe things in the future and in the distance and I would like to know what part of modern physics describes how that works. Padmas and Baba knew 1,200 years ago that if you can float into the future, then your consciousness is independent of cause and effect. If you have a dream tonight of something that's going to happen tomorrow, and then you see it tomorrow, and you say, oh, my gosh, that elephant in the garden was exactly what I dreamt about last night, and I would have never guessed that. That was not part of my wish fulfillment or anxiety, but there's a damn elephant just like I dreamed last night. So we'd say that last night's dream 
was caused by the next day's elephant, and that's retrocausal. And the idea of retrocausality is a very hot topic in modern physics. The idea that things in the future can affect you at an earlier time. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you can experience things in the distance, independent of space. So the thing that we know, thing that all remote viewers all over the world agree on, is that you don't degrade the, your accuracy or reliability by looking further and further away. There's no doubt that you can describe the weapons shop in the Soviet Union just as easily as you can describe the swimming pool across town in Palo Alto. Both of those were described by Pat Price with superlative architectural accuracy. His description of the crane and the spheres buried in semi-Palatinsk in Siberia, those drawings are just as accurate as his drawings of the swimming pool two miles south of SRI. So going 6,000 miles away did not degrade the ability at all. Hmm. Similarly, we know that uh, one of the things we had to do, Ingo Swan, who was really the father of remote viewing, Ingo named what we're doing remote viewing, and he got us into looking at outdoor lifelike targets instead of guessing what's in the envelope. Swan said, if I want to see what's in the envelope, I'll open the envelope. What you're asking me to do here, the trivialization of my ability, I can focus my attention anywhere on the planet or off the planet. You got to give me something worthwhile doing or I'm going home. (laughs) So Swan was the one who invented remote viewing in the modern era and encourage us to teach this limitless awareness. <laughs> yes, well, Ingo Swan was a bold guy. And uh, I guess, Lance, a question for you is that the film does sort of stick to the more easier-to-swallow cases of remote viewing, like seeing the NSA base, or even though they're still impressive, I'm curious because there are much further out things that Ingo Swan would remote view, like the backside of the moon and seeing domed structures and an alien presence, or this story that I've heard you tell where apparently Pat Price was looking at a facility inside a mountain where he saw some UFOs going in and out. Obviously, for the film, you just want to prove this stuff is possible first before really taking them to those depths. But what are your thoughts on some of those further out examples? Well, I mean, this will probably be sort of a topic that I'll, I'll broach hopefully someday in another another project because I find all of that really interesting as well. But Russell's mantra to me, uh, which I really sort of took to heart, was one unbelievable thing at a time. <laughs> and, and another thing I, I've always followed is the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and there's something totally to that. You take the simplest thing and then you build that up as, as well as you possibly can. And then there's no possibility that, that uh, someone can really question what you're doing because you're, you're, you're just taking the facts and you're putting them out. I always say this is sort of like documenting the Holocaust. You know, not that it's anything like that, but when you deal with something so unbelievable, if I was just looking at a bunch of numbers on a piece of paper, you know, that doesn't have real meaning to me. But when you actually talk to the people who were there and you actually compare that to the data and, and you get a very well-rounded picture of actual evidence, 
then you may not know all of the answers, but at least you know something actually occurred that is inexplicable. And I've read Penetration, you know, Ingo's book, and I've researched all of this different kind of stuff. And I love talking about UFO stuff. It's a huge hobby of mine as well to follow that subject matter. But that stuff is still much more speculative because we don't have a guy that actually went to the backside of the moon to verify what Ingo Swan did there uh, psychically. We do have a guy who could go, you know, walk around uh, semi-Pelotinsk and look at the big spheres and write an article for Aviation Week, as happened, to verify what, you know, Pat Price talked about there. So that's what we decided to focus on, was just the cases that we knew were really, really well documented. And by the way, there are many, many, many more cases that we actually have documented, but this didn't appear in the film for the sake of time. I mean, you know, so much of it was how do you get this film under like five hours and have people not like go into a coma because we're feeding them with so much data. You know, we, we had to sort of make, allow it to breathe and just tell the story in a, in a sense that was digestible. I actually found it really stunning to me that so many times we would show people the film and I would think that we were being very obvious and straightforward about the information and they didn't get it right away. You know, it's almost like our brains have this sort of a filter on them where where uh, when it's information kind of outside of our paradigm, sometimes people really need to sit there and, and soak it in and be told like one, two, three times. And and and, and then maybe they start to come around. And, and, and this is a phenomenon that almost every scientist that we interviewed or, or person that goes out and speaks publicly about this has encountered is is that sometimes, you know, people just kind of refuse to see the data and refuse to kind of you know, look at it and, and, and allow their minds to be changed. So, so we wanted something that acted as a catalyst for conversation. And then from there, maybe in another project, I can, you know, you know, extrapolate out to a lot of other things. But I will say this, that I find it that there's a lot of evidence that your consciousness can go anywhere. And it's not limited by the speed of light. It's not limited by anything like that. And, and that would really suggest that you can sort of for example, for with extraterrestrial civilizations, we're probably looking in completely the wrong place, you know, to make any kind of contact. We're looking at radio waves and, you know, trying to, you know, use signal flags and, stuff, you know, whatever. But but in, in reality, your own consciousness is so powerful that we're probably just missing the phone calls uh, that we're getting from the stars basically saying, you know, hey, guys, we're out here because we just dismiss that stuff. But it's still speculative. So so that's why it, it didn't wind up in the film, because we really wanted to be grounded in uh, actual data that could have been verified. And that was the beauty of working with the U.S. government um, is is that they had ways to verify stuff that you and I, you know, if we decided to remote view, uh, you know, Brezhnev's office or, or a missile base in you know, China or something, we would never be able to know if we were accurate. But they had real time assets that could verify everything. And, and I think that is why it was useful. So in one sense, yes, the CIA was not a place to study this stuff because they didn't care about how it worked. They only care that it did. But, but on the other hand, they had tools at their disposal to verify things that otherwise could never be verified. So that was a very powerful tool for creating evidence. Mm -hmm. Great points. And yeah, you got to be methodical. Everyone is kind of on their own level with this sort of stuff. But I guess once you're sold on remote viewing as a viable tool, and then you hear these other things like alien bases on the moon or in Alaska, I mean, you gotta wonder because those implications are just as huge. And he was right about Jupiter's ice rings before anyone else seemed to be able to observe them. 
I mean, Russell, you knew these guys. I mean, should I put some credibility in what they say? You find them to be credible people, right? Well, as Lance said, we try and steer clear of the UFOs because we don't have any firsthand data about them. Mm -hmm. But one day, Pat Price, our psychic policeman, came in to our office at SRI and said, you know, I was sitting at the kitchen table and I started looking for UFO bases. This is what a person might do after his coffee at dinner. <laughs> right. And he said, I found uh, four sizable UFO bases where they're building stuff. One of them's in Alaska and Mount Hayes. Another one's in the Pyrenees Mountains. Another one's in South America. And the third one is uh, in Australia. And he described the place in Australia. So we, of course, sent this list of places to the CIA. And CIA said, well, the place he identified in Australia is, in fact, a place where there's been lots of UFO sightings and activity. So it's interesting that he should pick that out. And as we were finishing the film, I went back to this data and said, what the hell is Mount Hayes in Alaska? And it turns out that Mount Hayes is right now a big center of UFO sightings. Huh. And even Wikipedia has pictures of UFOs flying over Mount Hayes. It's sort of the, the hot uh, 2019 place to be looking for UFOs. And this was all described by Price in 1974. So he, he may have been onto something. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And Russell, I've also read your book, The Reality of ESP, which talks about this saga a little bit, but also goes on to fold in things like healing at a distance and evidence that at least some part of us survives death. And when you fold in all those exotic functions of consciousness that are maybe outside of the scope of the film, it's really obvious our models need a little tweaking. And I'm a bit familiar with your eight-dimensional model, but maybe you could elaborate on how these things have shaped your view of what reality even is? Well, we, uh, that's a big question. First <laughs> of all, yes, I am convinced that some part of our consciousness survives bodily death. I think there's now been at least a century of very thoughtful investigation, starting with the formation of the British Society for Psychical Research, where you had a whole bunch of distinguished psychologists at Cambridge interested, starting with F.W. Myers, who wrote the book, Human Personality and the Survival of Bodily Death, where he has cases where the medium will describe a conversation with a deceased person, and it sounds like a long-distance phone call from the dead. So you have F.W. Myers, who is a philosopher at Cambridge, talking to his deceased buddy from the philosophy department and the medium is maintaining the telephone line between Myers in the office and the other guy who's deceased. And it really sounds like a long distance phone call where Myers and his buddy are describing what they're going to teach next year. They have to replace the guy who died and the guy who died is describing what classes should be taught and where they should be taught. And it just sounds like, and it, you can't really fake uh, two philosophers talking to each other. 
in philosophy speak any more than you can if they're speaking philosophy it's like speaking french or german you've got to actually be a philosopher to talk to a philosopher about those kind of questions so the data from Meyer's research, I find very compelling that some aspect of personality does survive. Mm. Now, with regard to the eight-space model, as a physicist, I'm very interested in trying to find a description of how you could possibly have direct contact with something that's in the distance. And in the early part of the 20th century, Herman Minkowski worked with Einstein. Einstein had this idea for relativity, but he couldn't write an equation that made sense. Einstein was a very smart physicist, but he was not a great mathematician. Minkowski was a great mathematician and was already interested in imaginary space-time, along with Riemann, who also helped Einstein. Riemann was a decade before Minkowski, and they were both interested in complex space-time. And with complex space-time, what, what I mean by that is that you've got the four coordinates you're familiar with, that is, three spatial coordinates, up and down, left and right, here and there, you have three space coordinates and a time coordinate. And Minkowski pointed out to Einstein, if you make the time coordinate multiplied by the square root of minus one. So you have I times the time. You can then write the equations you want for relativity, and that worked. So nobody notices anymore that relativity actually has an imaginary coordinate. That doesn't shock anybody because we've used it now for 75 years. And what we're proposing is that all the coordinates of space and time do have an imaginary part. So what we are not doing is saying, ESP is pretty puzzling. Why don't we add another spatial dimension? Maybe it's the fifth dimension. We're not doing that. We're saying Einstein's four-dimensional space-time works quite well. If you want a space-time that's non-local, which is what physicists talk about these days, then you need a space-time that allows things that are distant in the ordinary space to be available in the complex space-time. Now, that may be too much to say. It's just a coordinate system where things that are distant in ordinary space, like from here to Moscow, 6,000 miles away, in complex space-time, there will always be a path through that complex space-time, through the complex manifold, there will always be a path that is total zero distance. And we think that something like the complex space-time that we're talking about will be the answer, will be a description of how ESP works. It may not be our complex H-space, but modern physics agrees that we live in a non-local space-time. Non-local space-time is... The, the hot topic in modern physics is the idea that photons that were born together and travel away from one another are still connected. So if you grab the photon that went to Jupiter, his brother on Earth will notice that the missing twin was grabbed and there'll be a change in the 
correlation between the two. So there's no question that something like non-local correlation exists between things that are separated by hundreds of millions of miles. No, no doubt that the idea of non-local connection and entanglement is the most interesting thing going on in modern physics. And we think that this non-local space-time is a possible description of what we're seeing because the most interesting thing we know is that the accuracy is completely independent of the distance. When Ingo was asked to describe what are we going to find on Jupiter when NASA was launching the Pioneer spacecraft, the NASA contract monitor wanted Ingo to say, tell me something I don't know. Ingo said, well, closes his eyes, takes a puff of his cigar, and said, well, looking at Jupiter, I never noticed before, but there's a big fat ice ring all the way around Jupiter made of ice crystals shining in the sun. And my contract monitor, George Pesder, said, well, Ingo, you're thinking of Saturn, aren't you, with the rings? And Ingo, who does not suffer fools gladly, said, no, I've been looking at these things for 50 years. I know the difference between Jupiter and Saturn. You ask me about Jupiter, and Jupiter has this big ice ring that nobody's ever seen before. And eight months later, when the spacecraft got there, they sent us pictures showing the ice rings that Jupiter has. And you mentioned my book, uh, The Reality of ESP. I have Ingo's drawings that he made that day of the rings around Jupiter together with NASA's photographs. And Ingo was right on the money that the most interesting thing they found in Jupiter when they got there was the ice ring 500 million miles away. Hmm. Yes, it is so fascinating. And Oh, and the point is it didn't take him any time. That is, Jupiter is a space hour, hour away. That it takes light an hour to get to Jupiter. It did not take Ingo any time to get to Jupiter. He said, oh, you want to see what's on Jupiter? Let me take a look. He closed his eyes and said, well, I see these rings. Yeah, it is so mind-blowing, just the speed in which he could do that. And man, this has been so great. As we start to pull this thing together, again, the film is as amazing as it is historic. I have to tip my hat to you, Russell, in a big way because it's pretty brave to be so bold with the books you've written and now in this film. I know much of it has been declassified, but it seems like you were going to talk about some of this stuff either way. For me, as someone who is really intrigued by secret research and would like to see a lot more of the people involved in these kind of things disclose what they worked on, at least before they pass on forever and we lose it, I just greatly appreciate that about you. And before we wrap this up with the plugs for the film and everything people need to know, I guess my last question is if you're hopeful that we might see colleagues of yours in other areas of classified research, maybe other things you might be aware of, possibly from places you've worked like Lockheed Martin, perhaps. Are you hopeful that maybe others will be so bold as to follow suit and throw out some stuff that maybe authorities might not want them to? Well, of course, my feeling is that I would like there not to be any secrets. As we say, again, again and again in the film, no more secrets. See, we're working at SRI, and as things work better and better, then they surrounded the whole thing with sheetrock, 
And I thought that was obviously ridiculous if Hella Hammond can sit in my office and describe what's going on in Brezhnev's office 6,000 miles away. What do you think a piece of sheetrock is going to do? <laughs> so pe people sort of underestimate psychic ability and do things that don't make any sense because it's beyond their experience. You ask me, what do people say who've seen the film? What are the reviews like? My favorite review, the person said, I saw this film, and that was so amazing. The first thing I wanted to do is see it again because it blew me away. <laughs> that is a great review, I'd have to say. And as you've said in the past, we paid for it, so maybe we deserve to know. And I like that phrase too. Lance, let the people know where to watch the film, how to see the extras, and any other things they might want to know before I cut you guys loose. Thanks, Greg. Um, yeah, right now the film is available worldwide on um, every digital platform. So if you have uh, cable services with video on demand, you can rent it. Um, iTunes is a great place because, uh, you know, we would love to get you on there and, uh, you know, write a review about the film if you enjoy it. Amazon.com, you know, you can get it there. You can get it on Google Play, uh, YouTube, pretty much just anywhere that you can go and look for it. Um, one easy sort of reference guide to find everything is just to go to thirdeyespies.com. And right there at the top, there's, uh, you know, um, all the different links. You can also buy DVDs there um, or Blu-rays uh, if you want to go to thirdeyespies.com. Uh, you can also just uh, um, join our Facebook group pretty soon. Um, I'm going to make some like Third Eye Spies t-shirts and stuff that'll be there. So there'll be some merch that you can also get. Uh, you know, on, on our Facebook channel. And you can also go to our YouTube channel, which is uh, Waking Universe TV on YouTube, um, or uh, just my name, Lance Mungia, that's M-U-N-G-I-A. Uh, and if you just type that into YouTube, it'll come right up. And um, I will be doing a weekly series, um, you know, for the foreseeable future there on the YouTube page, um, you know, just putting out a lot of this information that did not actually make it into the film. Uh, because there were so many people we interviewed and so many different stories that were told, so many conferences that I went to and, uh, you know, things that I filmed that that did not have time to make it into the film. So all of that will be appear appearing on uh, YouTube and iTunes, by the way, if you get it there, there is a tremendous, tremendous extras package that comes with that. There's eight unique, really sort of well-polished um, extra features um, that come with the film if you get it on iTunes. So um, but a lot of that is also on the YouTube channel, so you can get it there, too. That's great. And I think people really should try to get as much of the material as possible because there are these little things peppered throughout by various people. And my fingers are crossed for a large and positive response, maybe a signal to let the secret keepers know, come on in, the water's fine. You know, what were you afraid of? But again, I really appreciate you guys' time and work. I mean, Russell, it's an honor and a pleasure to even talk to you. I'm giddy. I'm giddy, Russell. But hey, Take care out there, guys. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're very happy to have the chance to be with you. Yeah, thank you, Greg. It was an honor, and and uh, really thank you for having us, and help. Thank you for helping us get the word out about this. It's I think it's it's good stuff, and it's important for people to know. So thank you. You got it. Keep fighting the good fight. And there it is, dear people. There it is. The legendary Russell Targ and his partner in 8mm magic, Lance Mungia. I thought this was a big deal. I mean, we've talked about Stargate documents, especially lately, quite a bit when it comes to Shaman Janir and also the Hollow Fractal show with Joe. So now we're talking to one of the key players in that unknown chapter of American history. Someone 
who told Sidney Gottlieb no and lived to tell the tale. And as an interview, obviously, they're here to promote the film specifically, and it's definitely worth being promoted. I actually had to leapfrog this one in the production schedule and try to turn it around quickly because they're trying to keep the film up on those charts, and I get it. But I did want to try to throw some extra stuff in there. And that's kind of the joy of a two-hour show. It's longer than most are used to, and you can kind of do this two questions for you, one for me pattern, and everybody's happy. And not all of those oddball questions went somewhere. I got the standard Michelson-Morley response about ether, and we already talked to Aaron Murakami about that. An experiment that fails to detect something does not mean that that something doesn't exist. And I believe they were testing ether flow like a river current, and they didn't find it, but maybe that's not the way to go about it. But hey, I just took a shot because he's a physicist who has had to adapt the model a little bit to fold in this remote viewing research. Figured I'd ask. And I honestly don't know. I just know what I want to be true. But what a career, right? A pioneer in the development of lasers, a pioneer in scientifically testing psychic abilities, and then ending your career as a chief scientist for Lockheed Martin. Hmm. I had to at least try to bring those themes together, working with light and consciousness, as well as seeing how you don't have to go too far into the remote viewing rabbit hole or the Lockheed Martin rumor mill before you get to UFOs. So it was all worth asking. But I understand the man is 84, doing podcast interviews on Skype. He's happy just to have the freedom to talk about the Third Eye Spy's work. And as he says, one unbelievable thing at a time, you know? Maybe that stuff truly is out of his lane, but even if he did know something, those might not be his secrets to tell, but the SRI stuff is. I guess if I was in that position and I couldn't talk about my amazing work on real magic for a good chunk of my life, and the organization I did the work for came out and said it never worked or had any practical application. And then finally, later in life, I was actually validated. I probably wouldn't go poking that CIA bear any more than I had to, even if I did know some other stuff. And that scene is actually really moving in the film when Russell's son presents him with some declassified documents that he worked to get released. You can tell that Russell's pretty moved by it, and I thought that emotion was also pretty contagious. And I am just a little fuzzy on the exact timeline of everything, but if you've read Russell's books, it seems like he's been writing about this stuff longer than maybe he should have, or getting very close to the line. So I'm happy for him, and I have just so much respect for him too. I think this show makes a good compliment to... The American Cosmic episode in a lot of ways, or the conversation about Chris Milligan's dad, who wasn't cool with the CIA dealing drugs. These times where we're talking to or about people who have been within the inner circle. And they're good people trying to do the best they can within constraints that came from the top down. I think most of us should understand the fact that we'd like to do things differently, but we have bosses who write our paychecks, and thus we don't. Just scale it up a bit, you know? And I don't want to be naive or overstate things about people that I really don't know, but who really knows anyone, actually? 
And this all maybe touches on the theme of being better at handling conspiracy subject matter. Taking the higher and higher side chats and making it more about elevating the discourse than getting high. We don't have to hear that someone has a CIA contract and then retreat to the corner huddled up making a cross with our index fingers. I'd hope we can be a little better than that. Because if we don't have the nuance to tell the difference between a Russell Targ and a Sidney Gottlieb, nobody's going to want to talk to us and we'll only set ourselves further back and look like the crazy, paranoid, uneducated conspiracy caricature that they try to make us out to be. And I don't want to play that part. That's all I'm saying. And I'm sure it's been said before, but let's not forget what Russell did tell us. I think it conveniently, naturally fit right at the end of the free show. And what a finale, because I followed up on those weird UFO roads that this remote viewing research leads to and kind of said, Russell, you knew these guys, you trusted these guys, but they've also said X, Y, and Z. Some of them are dead now. You knew them. How much credence should we give to these far-out instances of remote viewing aliens or moon bases? And he did come back with what Pat Price said were the locations of four UFO bases. Well, that's not nothing. (laughs) So remote viewing is real. You might as well start trying it, right? I think it's so crazy that we'll read books about it, we'll listen to an interview like this, but then most people won't even take an hour to try. Don't be like that. Don't be like me. I played Apex Legends the other night for six hours. The same day, I worked out for 10 minutes and meditated for 15. Better than nothing, but the balance is as out of whack for me as it is for anyone. You know, I got a couple of friends who are talking about going to see a therapist or getting on some medication for their depression. And I try not to badger them too much, but I do say a couple of things. Number one, if your unhappiness is situational, then work on fixing the situation rather than taking a pill that numbs what is actually a pretty proper response. And two, try meditation, exercise, and a better diet first. And they say, well, do you meditate? And I say, look, just because I don't do it as much as I should doesn't mean it's not good advice. Plus, I'm not the one talking about psychiatrists and antidepressants. But I guess the point is that sitting still And focusing on our breath or clearing our mind sounds like the simplest thing in the world, but we'll jump through all sorts of hoops to avoid it. Knock that off. So I hope you had a good time. How could you not want to check out the film? Lance did a great job with it. I know for Russell, a big element of this whole thing was trying to honor Pat Price's legacy better than had been done. And you'll see in the film that there's a lot of sketchy elements around Pat's death. And we didn't talk about it today, but apparently Pat was a Scientologist. And if you know anything about that organization, they thrive on intelligence gathering. And I would even say blackmail of their own members. But Pat was telling them what he was doing. And who knows if that had anything to do with his death directly. But it's interesting and just another reason to watch the movie And check out Lance's extras on his YouTube channel, Waking Universe TV, because there's so much more there. So many little threads that are all interesting and just can't all be talked about in a two-hour interview. I'm sure some of you are wondering why I didn't ask if these things worked so well. Why did the program end in 95? Well, (laughs) yeah, it didn't. So don't you worry about that. The film makes it pretty clear that 
some people even being interviewed in it are still consulting in this manner today. So, another episode in the bag. If you like the way I put together a show and my line of questioning and all that stuff, you know it continued on into the full two-hour episode for people who are subscribers of THC+. I give you that first hour for free, but we definitely do get deeper in that second part. Some of the extra topics of today's would include using remote viewing to forecast the stock market, Russell's ESP training app, the reverse psi phenomenon, how much of the project is the CIA still withholding, Russell's thoughts on lasers, light, and consciousness, and affecting someone's physiology remotely. Stuff I really enjoyed, definitely added some layers to my understanding, and it's where I got to some of my off-topic questions. But we also talked about this curious little thing. (laughs) I guess it would be summarized in the sentence, Before the CIA contract, Russell was invited to a NASA conference on speculative technology where Warner Von Braun tried his psychic training game. What a sentence, right? Well, I could go on all day with those little details that I think should be highlighted and underlined a bunch of times. But either way, please sign up for Plus if you like what I'm doing here. We have years and years and years of shows, and I would love to see you hop on the train. The more members we have, the more fuel gets in the tank, the more clout we have, and the more people I can ask interesting questions to. It's the Conspiracy Podcast Circle of Life. But all that said, big thanks again to Lance and Russell. In fact, Russell would be the third THC guest with a banned TED Talk or a canceled TED Talk, so we're stacking those accolades. And with that, I'll see you next time. Your move, psychic spies, CIA secret keepers, and those tuned into their own naked awareness, your fucking your show now so what's it gonna be cause people will tune in to hear another new conspiracy almost too much oh we thought this was low it's bad getting worse so where'd all the good people go they're on the higher side chats cause it's everybody's favorite show Where'd all the good people go? He got your Mars golden white and then there's Crow. They talk this and that on the higher side chat testing one, two, now what you gonna do? Bad news, misuse, got too much to lose. Give me some truth, now whose side we on? Whatever you say. Turn on the boob tube, I'm in the mood to obey So lead me astray By the way now, where'd all the good people go? They locked him up it seems for protesting Monsanto Where'd all the good people go? They're on the THC, my favorite show So to hear Wanna light a bolt But I fear the police Can you hear me? Can't interrupt me From this friendly conversation Been waiting all week for
for THC With the car wood, there's no hesitation Exposing the truth, getting to the elite Scams, schemes, conspiracies and treason It's an excellent show, what I need to know Is where'd all the good people go? And fear from all the other hoes Where'd all the good people go? Guess that makes THC my favorite show Where'd all the good they people go? They talk this go? and that on the highest side Chat testing one, two, now what you gonna do? Bad news, misuse, got, give me some truth You got too much to lose Whose side are we on today anyway? Okay, whatever you say Wrong and resolute, but in the mood to obey Station to station Desensitizing the nation Going 